Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Please follow us on Instagram at The Art Salon, share the podcast with your friends, and consider becoming a monthly supporter of the podcast via Anchor. Today's guest is Kristen Clear. Kristen has been a friend of mine for some time and forms part of my monthly dinner party, which had become a recurring event in the months leading up to the pandemic. At these parties, I would host a group of Los Angeles musicians to spend an evening socializing away from the gig economy. She is one of the hardest working people I have ever met, and also a brilliant entrepreneur. She hit the ground running when the pandemic first hit, starting the Den Collective's online platform for musicians even before the official closure of the Los Angeles scene. With her hawk vision, she saw by late February what most musicians would only come to terms with by the summer of 2020. The result is that she has not simply made the best of the pandemic, she has employed musicians, enabled their livelihoods, and built something meaningful and functional, when so many others with colossal credentials are still panicking and hoping people's hard-paid taxes will bail the AFM's Local 47's insanely mismanaged pension fund. In this conversation, we talk at great length about self-reliance, the overindulgence of many nonprofits, the musicians' union, and the importance of following one's conviction in the arts. I would like to take a moment to comment on an event currently under discussion, the AFM's Local 47 support and lobbying for the push to have taxpayers bail out union pension funds as part of the COVID relief program proposed in the California legislature. This is led mainly by Robert C. Scott. It is repugnant that an organization that can barely agree on anything can rally so methodically in greed to justify receiving aid under the tragedy of a pandemic. In an incredibly independent economy, where institutions crumble, in the union's estimation, it is up to the ones who never benefited or were helped by these dinosaurs to be sure its already wealthier members get a pension through our tax money, while not being eligible to receive the benefits ourselves. It is not just pathetic but a forced contribution to what has all the makings of the sorts of pyramid schemes that usually land the people in charge in prison. The irony with the Musicians' Union in particular is that their members are the ones in the strongest position to save. So those outside of them are not just supposed to save their hilariously mishandled pension funds, but applaud their own personal financial imbecility. It is not the pandemic that has so decimated the Musicians' Union's pension fund, but rather the decades of greedy mismanagement and imbecilic financial decisions. If they have chosen to spend their money and focus their legal strategy on sending their intimidation forces to shame people working on non-union dates, that is on them. But to now expect the taxpayers to sponsor such practices is beyond the pale. If they had concentrated instead on fighting for appropriate royalty rights in the streaming market, we might be having a different conversation. But hey, at least they have triumphed in getting the players' names included in the credits of movies. So, as they watch on Netflix and make no money from it, they can at least say, Hey mom, look, I'm in the movies. Let's give three very sarcastic hurrahs for these humanitarian champions. And with my two cents on that, I leave you with a true champion for musicians, my dear friend, Kristen Clear. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Tell people who might not know who you are, and I, I know you've been invited to other things like with Chris Still and stuff about oh. arts entrepreneurship and all this. I don't know what your experience is with this because you do have a degree in it, right? In, in arts management? Yes. Yeah. So I have always thought that those arts management classes are already outdated by like 20 years to the realities of like how fast paced 
the music industry is. And I think even more so than like an MBA or something like that. And I think part of it is that universities are super shy at hiring. Well, it's like a twofold problem. Universities are shy about hiring young people that are doing stuff, but also those people doing stuff don't have time to be teaching. But you're one of the people that is like very, like at least trying to to teach like arts entrepreneurship and you can sort of put your money where your, where your mouth is yeah I think you, the second part you hit the nail on the head like that many of us that are wanting it or could offer um for example this past semester being at Hawaii Pacific University I was guest lecturing like that's actually more helpful for um people kind of in my level that want to offer and give back and, and it is nice to go teach at a university. I love mentorship and I love mentoring undergrad students. I love connecting with them. Like I usually have five or six girls from the music industry, one guy, but they're mainly all women. But and like they um will like at least have a once a month phone call check-in. And it's not anything they like it's you know I don't feel like charging. It's not about that. It's just about like making sure that I give back and I I had so many people like reach down and give me a hand to pull me up. And so, you know, I just think it's like, yeah, that's the, the right thing to do. But, um, but the guest lecturing stuff is helpful because it's less of a huge, huge lifetime commitment, but you're able to give enough and to speak very pointed on maybe three topics that you happen to have insight in. Um, you know, I also adjunct in LA and that, is also helpful because it's like once a week seminar style. That still allows me to go gig, freelance, you know, do whatever uh, previously <laughs> and and not have to like spend every day on campus or grading or that stuff, you know, you can kind of like compartmentalize a bit. But yeah, I think that's, that second point is very true because we are many of uh, my, my like arts admin colleagues are just now getting to like they're past the entry level but they're not c-suite yet <laughs> and they are really you know focused on, on kind of climbing that ladder and so it's hard to pull even really smart talented people away from their own goals if if that's not in their sphere of you know what they're interested in um yeah i forget the first part Oh, the, I think it's kind of like a glass. I think it is a little bit of an ivory tower. Um, you know, maybe some professors will get mad at me for saying that, but I think, I think the universities that are able to bring in lots of guest speakers, lots of guest lectures, lots of hands-on, lots of internship opportunities that really connect people in, you know, in the summers to have that hands-on experience. Lots of case studies, like active case studies, not case studies printed from the NEA from 2002. Like that's not helpful for us with orchestra management right now. <laughs> um, you know, but I think I, I was also somewhat lucky because I did go to, I did my arts admin at Florida State, uh, my master's and I, part of my TA was that I was the man, the orchestra manager for the, the top three orchestras. And so that in itself was felt like a mini job. Um, and it wasn't me studying about how to manage an orchestra. You know, I just did it, but I did it under a safe umbrella of the university. Well, but you also have like something going for you that <clears throat> I often bemoan about 
arts admin. And I, so I'm not one of those people. Look, I'm not one of those people that thinks that like the, you know, you know, those musicians that just drive me crazy. And it happens the same in like college versus uh, like professors versus admin where it's like the admin don't do anything and vice versa. The, the admin who are like professors don't know anything. I have a degree in music. It's like, okay, well, but you didn't make it as a professor. So you're here as an admin person. So know your place. So, but I'm not one of those people in general that like thinks that there's this dichotomy, but I do think the thing that you have and some very successful people in that are entrepreneurs or are good admin in major organizations is that, you actually do have a career as a performer and have had one. So mm. I see you more as like that type of person that's a very good administrator, but it's also you're you're also a musician. And that's really not the case in a lot of these um, degrees. And what are you saying about the ivory tower? It's almost like that shouldn't exist because an arts administration degree to me should be like an MBA and some of these people are trying to turn it into a, ma a master's in economics which is like completely different like like you're saying you can't be studying stuff in an industry that moves as fast as the music industry in this decade or, or in these last 20 years when you're studying what the record labels did in the 1980s like it's just not useful yeah you know? I think it's helpful to know mm. your history it's like helpful also to know the history of I don't know, like how Brahms was performed originally, you know, like it's helpful, um, but that doesn't really interpret how you're going to truly dictate your, your, like your performance a hundred percent. Yeah. But thank you, because I think it is, it has been really helpful for me to be a musician because, and percussionist specifically, because I'll look at like an instrument load in or a schedule or a rider and I'll be like, this isn't possible because there are stairs in the venue or like there, there are no double doors. Why do we have timpani on the rock, on the instrument list when we can't fit the timpani in the room? Like that happens and I'm like, it blows my mind. And then there's like, you know, $400 just down the tube because the timpani are sitting in the loading truck. <laughs> like, so, um, you know, little details like that, I guess, are quite helpful within, within musician background, but it really much more comes out to the, like, you know, I can communicate with the artists on the stage because I can relate to them. And, and, act, and being on tour, now I get why guest artists on tour are so nutty because we are tired and hungry and we've probably been in the, the sub suburban for five hours. And all we want to know is like, where's the green room? Where are my snacks? And like, where can I warm up? And, and they come in very disheveled and confused and all that. But like, I, <laughs> 10 years later, I finally get it. Like, that's why they're so ornery at the beginning. Um, they just want their green room snacks. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the other part of this that's interesting to me is, so because you've been a performer, you also understand, and we were just talking about this before hitting record, like what a miserable life freelancing can be. Like it's not, it's like you you learn, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you learn how, how the hustle feels. And um, that's something that friends of mine, for example, that jump from 
college, you know, with the safety of college to like an art, a large arts organization to become administrators, they are living the lie of private funding, which is like, let's say you jump from college to the LA Phil, you don't really understand what real life is. Like you just <laughs> jump from college to the best funded organization in America. And it's like, oh, you know, we need to hire some extra trumpet teachers. Yeah, sure. Here's $5,000 blank check. Go do whatever you want. Or, you know, it, there's a, a, a different understanding of what entrepreneurship means because they aren't aware of the hunger it takes to actually make your own thing. So they're like the worst person to go to for advice about like starting your own career or, you know, like starting your own organization because they have the benefit of something that wasn't built by them. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. And I think that's the case for, you know, outside of even the music industry, mm -hmm. big corporations, you know, and, and many people do follow the path MBA students that are, you know, like you said, the economic side, you know, will follow a very strategic path get the internship, do the thing, like get the degree, then, then go get the entry-level job, then climb the ladder. And um, I should also say, you know, musicians that want to go get that top-level orchestra job and, and work hard and do, like follow your dreams, like work really, really hard. Don't discredit the fact that that spark is in you. Like that's important. You should definitely fuel that. Um, I think because of COVID right now, it's been really fascinating to watch so many of my musician friends that have thought that they're quite stable in a top five orchestra. Now, you'll, you see, you've seen the ones that have really taken on some entrepreneurial initiatives. Um, and some of them have just like frozen or pan panic, you know, um, which I'm not saying like that's bad either. Some people, some of my music friends with the orchestra uh, season canceled, have gone on and explored other areas of their life that have really opened up a lot more joy and uh, told me like, Kristen, man, I'm playing happier and better and better sounding than I ever have before. Because they went and like explored and they're like, man, I like gardening or I like hiking. And they never knew, <laughs> you know? So, so I think um, this pandemic also has been quite interesting to watch how some of my friends that have thought that they were in quite stable careers um, and protected within, I mean, the union still, I guess, you know, it's like does, does their fair share in protecting, but but the the sense of security of having a paycheck, you know, every two weeks um, and having that taken away, it has been fun to see which ones kind of branch out into different entrepreneurial initiatives and uh, like pleasantly surprised too. You know, you're like, wow, I didn't know that was in me. Um, so I don't think it's all bad. Um, it's really, of course, it's quite sad that the pandemic forces people to go explore other unique parts of their personality. But I don't know if I should say that. So in, in the way I see it, like the world ebbs and flows in everything. It's, it's like we are all surprised by a pandemic, but actually they're quite common. They happen every hundred years-ish. They've happened to everyone every hundred years-ish. You know, and there's been much worse ones like the plague lasted for like 500 years. And it's so right. we yeah. think we think we're living this very unique thing, but like it's as old to humanity as humanity. And uh, what you what I'm what I think is cool, though, and what I in moments like these when like the paradigms crumble, which is what we're experiencing, it's like 
like you said, the people, ironically, for example, the people who were the most secure in the gigging world in Los Angeles are the most fucked right right now because they were the ones that didn't have a backup job that paid them uh, hourly or they didn't take enough students because they couldn't. They didn't have the time. And all of a sudden, the person who's making like $150,000 a year in the studios goes to making maybe 500 a month. And that's like, oh, that's insane. And it's through no fault of their own. And like you said, it's like so horrifying to watch. But at the same time, this is where somebody like you becomes useful. Um, innovators are not always useful. They can be very harmful in, mm. in when things are working. You know, when when something's working really well, it's really hard to throw a wrench in that system because it's like, why? Why do we throw a wrench? But when everything's crumbling, it's almost necessary to have people like you or with that mentality that it's like i am not waiting i'd rather go and do something and if it fails it fails but yeah you have to you have to be moving you have to be uh you have to do something because you know i'll i'm thinking of somebody who's the perfect incarnation of this that i've just been seeing online I, yeah he's i love him and he was like killing it he he was killing it in the studios, but like he doesn't know what to do with himself. This person doesn't know what to do with with themselves because it's like everything that made him successful crumbled and nobody taught him the value. And this is where like music schools failed. Nobody taught any anyone the value of like independent artistic thinking, which was at the end of the day is what we should have all been learning anyway. One of the things I like about what you're doing with with the den is that and you don't need to go into detail specifically about what the den was originally i want to talk a little bit about like how quickly you shifted from your original idea to the den to like oh this is a seize the moment opportunity yeah absolutely i will give a tiny bit of context just because the actual timeline is hilarious mm -hmm. um in early March, um, like my prior concept that I had been building out this business model for like two years now, separate from produced by Barry, concert production company. Um, and it was to provide resources for musicians. I'll leave it at that. But it was going to be physical spaces and um, like co-working meets, you know, for, for musicians and a lot of other stuff. Just trust me. But so we even had floor plans and some venue walkthroughs. And we had um, a I had one contract in my inbox. like early March and you were fundraising like you had been talking about this I mean because I I've talked to you for years about this I hadn't actively like pulled the trigger to start a fundraising round but I was like garnering interest I was like getting the pitch decks together I was you know we had like multiple business plans by that point done which is another point of like sometimes excuse me entrepreneurs like work so hard to get all the right things in order right? And like get everything ready and then I'll hit go. And that is just not what needs to happen. And so um, by mid-March, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like none of this is happening right now. And by the end of March, um, I was like, I watched my inbox because it was like Coachella got canceled and then Stagecoach and then South by Southwest. And I was like, there goes my summer. <laughs> and like gigs, it was like the rest of the year within probably 10 minutes, I had been my, you know, I had been wiped out and um, I was set to do a whole slew of tours with, with Scrap Arts in this, in the, uh, Scrap Arts Music is this drum group in the fall and it, uh, 
yeah, like like Europe and and other stuff. Anyway, I digress. But it was like within a 10 minute window, I watched not only the company plans kind of dissipate, but also my own like music career. And so I was talking to a lot of my music friends that were also gigging, touring, freelancing, recording, and they were all like, oh no. Um, and by the end of April, so within a four day window, I decided to pivot uh, the Den and put it online and call it the Den Collective. And I built out a back end where musicians can come on, coach remote sessions and can get paid. That was like the very baseline model was like my friends got to get paid ASAP. <laughs> got to get, got to make some kind of money. And so um, the, the interesting part was I was looking at other online teaching platforms out there because I was going to join one. I wasn't planning on like making my own. Um, but they either took a percentage cut of my lesson fee or they set my rates for me. And at some of them, I was getting paid out like 25 bucks, like for an hour long marimba coaching session or lesson. And I was like, this is rude. <laughs> this is still taking advantage of musicians. And so, um, so really the whole story of like built by musicians for musicians kind of attitude is so true. And so from the back end, um, our model is a simple membership based model monthly membership and the musicians set the rates of whatever they want to charge and they get a hundred percent of what they charge. I don't take a cut and it's proved really useful. Like, so within four days, I built out this backend hit launch, um, watched, I was like the help desk's favorite person for like a week. Uh, cause I am not a coder and, uh, watched every YouTube video from like a 10 year old from India explaining how to some kind of like integration back end and um I didn't care though like I just I spent like 10 hours one day being like how do I get the schedule calendar to integrate with zoom so that people again get paid out and the billing happens automatically like that was my biggest question of the day and nothing else mattered that day like I have a bad habit of forgetting to eat lunch when like something is that important so um, since that day, and we, I put a hundred dollars into the bank account for the for business bank account and did not do any kind of other fundraising, didn't tell anyone about it. And, um, you know, we've been in profit since day one. And we also have grown pretty organically. Um, it's all, every coach that's on there has been word of mouth. Like I haven't gone out and, you know, done like a sales funnel or anything like that. Um, and we've kind of just kept building, we like built the plane while it was flying. <laughs> so, you know, now we're, I don't know, 10, 12, 10-ish months, no, eight months? I don't know. Well, but that, like, one of the things that is cool about it, <clears throat> for me, hmm. you think about, well, beyond the platform being really cool, but uh, from your personality, is like what you described is essentially what we all faced when this hit as musicians yeah. and more so because you had been for two years envisioning something that is just maybe not even viable anymore but like in that moment even if you had thought it was viable at the time it was gone and yeah. like there's two possible responses at that moment which is like the one we've seen from most people, which is like, I had all these things and now it's it's over. And like, how do I or you go and shift completely. And then the other part of it that I think is super interesting that you had, I don't know if you had foresight or 
pessimism mixed with optimism that like most people are like, well, maybe I'll keep some of my gigs in the summer. And I remember how quickly I mean, we had that last dinner party together uh, and we had another one planned. When was the last one? March? Must have been. Yeah, it was pretty quick. And then in March, you were talking about like doing something like this. Then we got all closed down. And I think within a month, you messaged me and say, said, I think this is ready to go. And it's like, I'm not trying to say that it was easy because like you said, you're you're a work fiend, like any real entrepreneur, first of all, like you don't stop. But what I found really inspiring personally was like, oh, this is a person dealing with reality, which is like the other thing I feel a lot of artists aren't dealing with reality. It's like, no, no, this is like game over. Like it's not about waiting for the vaccine it's like even when the vaccine comes back like the the whole thing looks different at least for five to ten years it's gonna look different yeah and just to like put a pin in that and a side note like what also looks different is that there's gonna be some huge marketing initiatives that are gonna have to happen for large venues to encourage and and uh shift public opinion and public persona of like that it's okay it's safe to go be in a crowd like concert and marketing experiences like like marketing teams i think are going to have huge i would say like optimistic challenges like take it on of yes. course but like it's going to be a challenge to um convey to your target audience that it's safe for you to come join us for a concert in a closed room uh in i would say like even the next the next full year even if a vaccine like everyone got vaccinated tomorrow taking reshifting the mindset for um, a large population takes time so i'm i do not envy any marketing department of an orchestra right now <laughs> or or you know staples center <laughs> well and it was the other shoe dropping in a way for orchestras particularly because it's not like they were doing great as far as like uh audience development and whatnot and I keep hearing this like very optimistic thing and I want to believe it. Like it's, you know, you know, they keep comparing like after the Spanish fluid was the roaring twenties. And like, as soon as it opens, people are just going to be out. And, and I'm like, yeah, but there's also a lot of broke people now. And like, how do you, how do you say to a person who has now spent a year realizing the value of home mm -hmm. in a good way and now gets the added benefit of going out a little bit, that the time that they should spend outside should be investing in because it's expensive in going to the symphony or in going to your string quartet concert like how do you and this is where you're talking about like concert experience becomes super important I, i'm pretty convinced like burning man is going to be fine but i'm just not so sure about uh the metropolitan opera you know yeah yeah, um, I'm curious also because like a lot of the, even taking it into mainstream music entertainment, um, what I'm predicting is that there will be this like hybrid ticket model that now, which will, if you wanna extrapolate it, could possibly like nix out some of the smaller tours and it will go into like the bigger mega tours where let's say I wanna go see Taylor Swift um, and normally I would go either Staples Center down the street or uh, Madison Square Garden, right? But um, what if I don't wanna fly to Madison Square Garden this year, I can just buy a lower tiered price ticket online for any of the multi-cams that are gonna be set up, you know, and the camera production quality, at least this year, I mean, man, 
editors, cam camera, everyone, that side, those skill sets have flexed their muscles and have grown so much more. So any remote concert experience is going to be that much better with audio and video quality. Um, and so I do wonder if there are ways for orchestras to kind of take that on as well, where if they can get some of their tech up, like for example, I think the LA Phil does an excellent job. San Francisco Symphony also, I think they do um, great uh, uh, editing, you know, within some of their videos. But um, is there a way to really bring the audience member in and then to reach an audience member in in London and you you know what I mean? So I'm not I'm not sure by any means, but I'm curious to see. Okay, well if you've put this much effort in, why not continue it on into your business model, even when people can be there? Personally? The thing the thing that makes me uh, skeptical that hmm. the orchestra. I I think you're completely right about like Taylor Swift, Bruno Mars. Etc. They're gonna be. It's gonna change. Actually, you're right. Like I don't think the guy who lives in uh, Vermont is gonna feel like they need to drive to Madison Square Garden to see the show anymore. That person might say, you know what, I'm gonna stay home. If you live in LA, you'll still go to the show. If you live in New York City, you might still go to the show. But here's the part that I am not so convinced about the classical music. Like for the last 50 years, classical music institutions and conservatories, like this is universities as well have done their very best to uniform. Like, it's not so obvious to me the difference between the Los Angeles Philharmonic off the bat from the San Francisco Symphony, even in programming. Like, if I lived in San Francisco, I'd be listening to the same music as LA if I go to the symphony, pretty much. They might have, like, different soloists and different conductor, but still Beethoven, because they're not inventive that way. And this mm -hmm. is where it gets iffy, because the Berlin Philharmonic leads the charge by 10 years in the digital space they have a market they have the platform it's tried and tested and how do you justify it's a little bit like netflix hulu like how do you justify to the person already subscribing to the berlin philharmonic that the la philharmonic subscription is also worth his money so that he has both you know what i mean so like i don't know if the orchestras have done enough to diversify what they do and to be unique that it would justify somebody like me, a music lover, uh, subscribing to five of them for their content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you I know. think you're I mean, I don't know. I disagree slightly only in that, I, but I, I bring this up because I'm curious, like what happened to the Insight programming for LA Phil? I thought that was a great initiative. Like, cause that brought in, I'm, and this is just personal opinion. I brought in like a lot of multimedia tech into the stuff that I was producing and I really enjoyed it. Like when it's, when it's done well, it's super fun. Um, when it's not done well, it's like just awkward to sit through. <laughs> but, but like, I'm so innovative. I'm playing with a video. <laughs> oh my gosh. I have, no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> no, I will. I went, there is a percussion convention that, uh, me and a friend that is also really innovative on the east coast and she has her own uh initiatives and it's just super cool and, and integrated and lighting and uh like projection tech and all that stuff and she's a great player we sat there and it was like one of the best percussion quartets and they were like hyped up because they're so innovative because they had a projection of one drone flying over some ocean water on a loop and we sat there and we looked at each other and we're like, <laughs> like we were infuriated because we're like, do you know what we're doing? <laughs> like, this is not 
innovative. <laughs> well, that 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 reminds me of like when classical music says that they are uh, what's the the word they always use? Uh, reimagining the concert experience, and it's like okay. And then you walk into the venue, and it's like we removed the chairs. It's like oh. <laughs> <laughs> So so now I have to come to the concert hall for the innovative experience of being uncomfortable. Thank you. Oh, and you can bring your beer inside. It's like, oh, well, okay. Great. Wow, yeah. you really shift the paradigm there. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love the thought of Nico walking in and being like, at my beer, but it's like, where's my seat? Or like, I have to stand. <laughs> Just make sure you being like. We put some rugs down. It's a real homey feel. It's like, wow, you really did shift the concert. Par you really innovated, oh, guys. That's funny. That's funny. Oh gosh, I mean, and again, I feel like I need to be the the other voice in the room because I have a lot of friends. I I mean, and this is partially why I got close within orchestra management, like middle level orchestra mm -hmm. management. And then was like, man, if I keep wanting to go this way, I'm gonna be butting heads with people every step of the way to get anything on stage that I actually want to see on the stage. And so that's why I went and created my own um, concert production company. But I, I do have a good amount of friends that are that are in it and are in the weeds and they go through so much bureaucracy and like things to try to get stuff pushed through. And when it does happen, it is great. And they they do care. And they are working hard to try to figure out new and innovative ways. So I, I don't want to totally bash their efforts because I do see the good that's happening. And um, there's a, there just happens to be the bigger the orchestra, the more red tape that there is to, to get anything passed through. You have like three budgets to have to get approved in order to do one new concert series weekend. And then on the flip side, I don't know, I've watched other things happen so last minute that were, were not um, executed well or launched well because they felt that it was a panic that like, we need to make this happen and we need to be relevant. And so the other, the word relevant also is similar to my thoughts on, on that. But I do wanna you know, be a bit of a voice there in that there are good arts administrators out there that are trying really hard to you know, be the good in the in the room um i don't want to no and, and i think you're completely right and i also think it takes a, a personality that is a little bit of a on the way to extinction to be the type of person that can lead a big anything a big university or a big uh orchestra to change because it's the type like somebody like you for example you have all the right ideas but you're so nice. So that's also what makes you work so well with others. Uh, but, nice. <laughs> but, but, but your personality is like going to get swallowed in a big organization, because like you said, it, it, it would take all your determination and ideas plus being sort of a dick. And that kind of like personality is in extinction because it's hard to work. You know, it's like hard to work with somebody who's kind of an asshole. But on the other hand, like, if you want to steer a ship of that size to something new, you have to be, you have to have, you have to be so over the top, like, uh, what's the word they use to describe it? Doesn't work well with others. You have to be like that person, which is like something that our society has, I don't know if always for the better, 
but has decided is not positive. Um, and that's where I think what you just brought up is super interesting from the point of view of maybe that's what we should be teaching more, especially in this era. I think the coolest concerts I've seen have been from people like you, like small production companies, very clear vision, small group. Like, oh, it's four people. We know what we want and we do it. And the cool thing is technology is getting so cheap in some ways. Like microphones have never been cheaper. You can have a, a recording studio with basically a computer. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. like all you need is Pro Tools. And lighting has become cheap mm -hmm. too. You know, like I remember even when we when I started school, like a, right, a lighting rig was like, you know, $100,000 operation. And now it's like, oh, well, you know, you can... There's things you can do, is what I'm trying to say. And and some of the coolest concerts I've seen have been people that do their own thing. But on the flip side, it requires also, like, a different work ethic, which I think you have. You know what yeah. I mean? I don't yeah. Know. I do want to speak for a second on the leadership comment because um, I think it's interesting. I'm super curious of, like, where I'm going to end up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but... You know, I do have, I do have a C-suite now um, for the den as of January first. I'm so proud of them, and like everyone's on board for the right reasons. They, I just have the right personalities and the right people in the right spots, and it, it feels so good. We have these team meetings, and I am amped up for like two hours after our all hands meeting. Um, and I think there is something to be said about an emerging leadership. It's just where you you know you pick the right people around you and you surround yourself with the best talent. And I do not have to be the best. I shouldn't be the best at web management, but I know who is that also gets musicians and gets what we're all about and gets what we're trying to build. And so um, I definitely shouldn't be the best at social media, but I sh I should have the person there in in the CMO capacity that has a breadth of experience within, you know, targeted marketing initiatives. Um, every little field, you know, I should not, I mean, I do manage all of the financials to see, to oversee everything, but now I have a CFO. Mm -hmm. Guess what? The CFO is a CPA. Like there's a reason I'm not a CPA, <laughs> a, but, but you should, you know, like, so I think there's um, also something we said about just like getting the right team together and empowering them and supporting them so that they can go do what they do best. And to not limit them by any way. And so I'm curious about this kind of, this the leadership style that I'm really interested in really is about like empowering and supporting and communicating and making sure that everyone feels like on the same page and on board and, you know, and, and if they are not supported that they feel comfortable enough coming to me be like, Chris, I need this from you or I need this from this other person and this is holding me back in this way. And um, I think there's, hopefully a little less of the I'm the fear of I'm trying how do I say when kind of the old guard like I'm afraid to go talk to my boss that is where I think actually it's the most detrimental yeah and I think it's like a little bit maybe you you you'll correct me if I'm wrong but I've always diagnosed that as like let's go back to the boat metaphor because it is like so perfect if you're running like your own boat and it's a small boat then you know exactly what you're doing and then you get a bigger boat and then you you can talk to all three people in that boat it's like you're in charge of that sail and i'm in charge of it yeah, etc and so if you keep the boat relatively small like a relatively small organization small leadership 
you can do what you're saying. Now, the bigger the boat, and when you're changing the captain every five years, that gets iffy. You know, like, the Disney company can't run this way. But the part that has, I think, has been a mistake is to assume that your little boat has to be run like the Disney company, which I think is kind of what has really screwed up, like, corporate mentality, which is, like, some dude with a five-person team thinks he's the CEO of Disney and is an asshole. Like... That's not going to work because you have five people and you need to trust them. You know what I mean? It's it's very different. Yeah. And I think I mean, I am interested in building the den quite strongly. There's a, I, mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of ideas, <laughs> but you know, like I'm very this is why it's so important for me right now is because I think company culture starts at the executive team. One hundred percent. You see, if my C-suite is really all on the same page, even within company culture, then when I start to hire in people that they're going to manage or um, underneath or, or whatever, like, and the grid fills in, like it, that needs to already be in place. We can't, we can't wait till we're at X amount of employees for us to say, okay, now we're going to have company culture. <laughs> like, it's not going to fly. So, you know, um, for me to kick it off right from the very beginning and set certain values and in our first team meeting, half the call was like about company culture and values. And if anyone had any questions, how do you talk about the den? What words do we use? Um, really make getting clear on branding. You know, those things I think um, you can't skimp over. Even if you have a team of three, like everyone should be speaking about it in the same tenor of language. So um, I don't know, I really, I, I picture it to be, you know, like to grow really, really strongly and have departments overseeing other departments and blah, blah, blah. But if, if, uh, if that vibe gets lost or the, the core values of it aren't clearly communicated every single time that a new person is brought on, um, it's just, it's risky. You know, you're setting yourself up for little tiny weak links. So anyway. There was other things I was going to say on other topics, but I don't remember. But it's also like that weak link will inform all the people underneath him or her, which then becomes not just a weak link. It just becomes a weak department, which then is a trouble department, which creates, you know, it's, it's very cool how you're doing this. But, you know, you, how much of this did you actually learn in school and how much of it is like your own real world uh, experiences? I don't know how much of it comes from. Does um, any, any of it come from your like family experiences or anything like that? I don't know about family. My mom raised me with really strong values to just do well, to like work hard, do well, say you're going to do something, like honor your word, um, and above all, be kind. You know, she really instilled that in me. Um, and I'm very, I'm very, very grateful for that. I think in between undergrad and grad, you know, oh no, and even after, you know, every summer I was starting to just help and manage and produce music festivals and help things get on their feet and help friends projects, you know, along and then started producing more and more and then then created the company after seven years of doing it already. And so e even this past year, I'm just one of those people that really loves to continue to learn. And I know that there's so much more I can keep learning. Um, like I just finished uh, one of Y Combinator's programs um, remotely because I can like um, I, I did two Stanford executive programs over the summer um, online uh, that come from their executive MBA type track. Um, like, because why not? Like I wanted to learn about design thinking. Okay, like there's no one that says you can't because you finished your master's degree. 
Um, did Was design thinking talked about in my master's degree? No. But is it important now? Yeah. Um, was it important in orchestra management? Maybe, I don't know, not as much. May, yeah, maybe it should be, <laughs> but- It, sh it but, should have been because, yeah, anyway, we'll talk about that in a second, but just keep no, going. But I, I think um, for me, maybe it's just because I am a very kinesthetic learner, like the learning by doing thing is important and there's only so much I could learn in school and that's okay. Um, I should share, share also like the other side of the den, all of the coaches that come on board, behind the scenes, I offer and coordinate coaches only sessions for them. And so I bring in like marketing um, people to, to do like branding and uh, for Musicians 101, we brought in um, musician mindset, some uh, resources for managing your, your finances. We're gonna bring in a, like a, you know, taxes for musicians kind of thing. And that's the added value in my opinion for supporting my music community. Um, and if they're better supported, they can go out and coach better and then they, and then their students can receive better experiences. Um, and that leads to the, actually the next phase of the den we're launching in February. Um, I can't talk like too much about it yet, but it, it is to offer resources for musicians so that they can go thrive. And so there's going to be a, an emerging membership model that, you know, we're bringing out, we're bringing in like access to entertainment lawyers and um, mental health like licensed therapists that deal with musician trauma um again like financial resources real estate resources like all of the things outside of playing your instrument what do we need so that we can go do what we do best and if we are operating at a high level and a high frequency like then our music is and you don't know your music like you might just be like uploading some random track to spotify but maybe that one track is on the playlist for um a new civil rights lawyer that's coming in and needs a pump you up song right before he goes crushes it for like a black lives matter initiative like you just never know the or you know your music could be the soothing end of day experience for um someone that's just been in the emergency room dealing with covid patients all day like and have to go back to their family at the end of the night like you just never know what your music or your reach or your experience could really have an impact on a larger community and um oh god i got in a soapbox again sorry but that's where that's why i actually care about the den is because i see if the musicians are better supported all tides rise like everyone is going to benefit um so i don't really know how i got to this conversation but thank you for being along for the ride no, no the, but you know, and everything that you were just saying, one of the things that I also have been curious with you, but I don't think you're going to be the first, but I think we need more of this conversation to be out there in the arts specifically, which is there's this division we've created for somewhat good reason, but it's kind of all, it's all bullshit now. So like uh, the division I'm talking about is like there were these for-profit quote-unquote entertainment uh, things like uh, studios the record industry blah 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 now of course they produced artistic things but let's say what they were for they were about the bottom line right and that's okay i have nothing against that uh and then there were these like nonprofits, which were supposed to be cultural entities in curatorial arts and in in advancing cultural enterprise but what happened over time is 
I've always called them non-for-profit profit corporations. You know, the CEO makes a million bucks and yeah. the conductor makes two million bucks and the concert master makes, you know, $600,000. And, and then everything they do and the way they act is entirely to their donorship, which you could consider is actually like an investor, almost how they treat them. And it's mm -hmm. so they've lost their role, in my opinion, a lot of them, not all of them. I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to generalize, but they've somewhat lost their luster as nonprofits in the sense of contribution to um, culture. And the part that I think is interesting is like you get all these young people starting their groups, starting, uh, you know, organizations that they want to do something like you, and they always reach for the nonprofit model. And I sometimes I'm like, okay, this is kind of stupid because you're beholden to a don't. First of all, you become so uh, intertwined with this idea of like donorship, which is like a completely different thing. Like getting a donation is different than somebody investing in you, which is how we talk about it, but it's wrong. That's not true. A donor is a gift. You do whatever you want with a gift. Now, of course, people are like, well, I want to get that gift again, so I'm going to talk to the donor and see what they want. But it's not, you know, we've created this mentality that it's exactly like running a company, and it isn't. And the other thing I love about what you're doing, and maybe you can talk about it, why did you go down the path of, like, you're going to be for-profit, and you're going to run it like a company, and it, you're very clear about that. And it's like, of course, you care a lot about the people, like you're saying. There's a lot of care behind that. Why didn't you reach in the bag for the non-for-profit model? Or what do you think are the benefits and downfalls of each of the models, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I can get very specific with the business stuff. So um, Produced by Bear is actually the parent company of the Den Collective. Mm -hmm. And um, that's very helpful because I plan on creating, <laughs> I don't know if I should say all this, but whatever, <laughs> put it out there. Um, like, I still believe that we will have physical spaces sure. Or at every city, the den will exist so that, you know, at a quality level, I can go in, I can have my practice room, like my daycare there, like everything, it will be um, a resource there for musicians. And it's also will have the hub that the online collective, you know, uh, offers. I plan on having a, a record label from the den that treats musicians more fairly, an artist agency that actually like, you know, uh, that will support, you know, done collective members. Um, what else? Publishing house, because obviously um, I watched a lot of the publishing deals, the legal side, people aren't realizing all of the contracts that they're signing right now. And then they're switching to just stream streaming. Like film composers are getting destroyed from this because um, their contracts still read under the DVD model of distribution and the streaming line in a lot of their contracts. It, and when everyone went like straight to stream, you know, rat with further releases. Anyway, I digress. So, you know, those types of things. Um, and actually funny enough out here in Hawaii, I'm working hard to create a, um, a musician retreat center mm. because I think that it's worth it. It's helpful. I think that musicians need it. Um, so within that, so the den, uh, Produced by Bear being a parent company opens up the opportunity for me to have all of these other projects and ventures and I can pair them off into separate companies as I choose and it offers me to have a nonprofit branch at some point so I plan on having a 501c3 under it, um, but it doesn't limit me 
to then the types of funding, if I do want to apply for, um, you know, if I do want to do a, a funding round, I think the other interesting thing within trends within some emerging markets is that there's this public good entity that's emerging that's more popular. It's not quite LLC or Inc. It's not quite um, 5 one but it it's for profit, but the company has to prove uh, some type of like, I don't know, I don't know the exact words, but like intrinsic value or community value or something. And I looked a lot at actually becoming a public good entity. Um, and perhaps maybe one of those other companies will turn into that at some point. But I guess just do your homework, you know, and think where's the greatest impact that you can have through certain tax structure and company structure um, situations. Also be really mindful of like what, what does a board mean in different types of business models? A board in an LLC and an Inc is very, very different than a board in a 501c3. Um, so it's not like wanna, you know, do this, don't do that, but like do your homework. If, if someone, if anyone, you know, is considering creating a, an entity. Well, and I think for us, I think there's something really, um, so I have a lot of friends, maybe this is my benefit in life, is a lot of my friends are outside the music industry. Oh, yeah. Oh, also, yeah, like here in Hawaii, most of the people I'm surrounded with right now are uh, techies from Silicon Valley and LA. And it's awesome to be in communication with people that are so, so on board with entrepreneurial spirit and mindset. Like, I think I have just skyrocketed because I've been around that support. Yeah, I support having non-music friends as well. <laughs> but also, the, I, I think what I've learned from people like that, so like my best friends uh, that I grew up with in Colombia, like none of them are musicians. And they basically went on. It's very, it's a very interesting mix because one is an economist professor, economics professor at in a, Mex in a university in Mexico. And he like, did all his schooling at Stanford. I mean, that dude's a genius. And then I have a friend who graduated UPenn and started his own company and is killing it. Then I have a friend who works in Silicon Valley and automated cars and, and another one that works in marketing. And what's super interesting about talking to them versus like the music world, the bubble that we live in. And I know it's like cliche to say it's like they understand the real world, but there's a there's less of a thing in those industries about like you got to take care of yourself. Like like my friends, when they started their companies, a big part of it was like, I'm killing, I'm killing myself for five years, but because I believe in this and also because I want to reap the benefits of what I sow. Like if I'm going to spend, you know, 10 hours a day running code, you bet your ass I want to be profitable and like do the best to get something back out of it. And mm -hmm. I think maybe musicians, because like our whole life is spent in like, practice 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 and we get into this idea that like work doesn't necessarily yield financial benefit all the time if you're starting something i think like we small small people like ensembles uh stuff like what you're doing i think we can benefit from the idea that like you don't need to be a quote-unquote public service like this it's okay for you to kill yourself and then reap a ton of money out of it or and then the other thing I've started to understand from my friends is like, it was the first time in my life that I started realizing like the whole talk that is so common among artists of like, uh, 
tax breaks being horrible for people that make money. I'm like, I am starting to get the benefit of like having a small company and employing people and why you should get a tax break as a public good company. You know what I mean? Like if you're killing it with the den, I'm all for your tax bracket being less because you're like employing people sure. and you're bringing a public good for the music community. And like, mm -hmm. I, I think our hostility towards profit is so insane because we've become accustomed to this like nonprofit model, which is also kind of bullshit. Like it, it for, for small things like this, I get it. Like I get why a museum is nonprofit and I get why universities are not for profit, but for something like what you're running, I'm so glad that you went outside of it. And it's like a good example of how people can start running their record labels or their, their own projects, their ensembles. Like, does your ensemble need to register as a nonprofit? Probably not. Like, why? Because you get a tax break, you can get a tax break some other way by being profitable. And then there's like a lot of incentive to be profitable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, unless you are really gunning for like, okay, again, the reasons why to become nonprofit, um, you have to keep in mind, like in order to become a nonprofit, then you have to have a board, you have to keep them updated. You have to, uh, like, it's expensive every year to pay, you know, to be a registered nonprofit. Um, there are a lot of extra little things to do. So I'm not saying don't do it, but know that if you want to sign up to be a 501c3, like there are more check boxes to make sure that you do. If you just want to run it DBA even for as long as you can, that's great. Just make sure you have QuickBooks that is separate from your private bank account. That's it. Like just CYA a bit. <laughs> you know, like, and maybe just have a separate bank account, track your expenses through QuickBooks. I think they even have like entrepreneur, QuickBooks entrepreneur now. It's like, I don't know, 10 bucks a month, mm -hmm. like two lattes. <laughs> In order to make sure that you are like safe. So if anyone ever audits you, you can just show them these reports and, um, you know, that, that is one thing actually I definitely did right was made sure that our finances were always separate and I'm, I'm meticulous for tracking everything. There's this $5 charge that I can't figure out where it came from, from like four months ago. And I, I'm still determined to figure it out. But other than that, you know, like, so anyway, I digress. It, um, I think, I think just to keep in mind, if you do want to do nonprofit route, just know that like, yeah, you're going to have to have a board and sometimes Boards are challenging to manage, which also means they maybe pick the right people for your board. <laughs> but that's where it gets iffy because you start picking, like, for example, let's take a, a Los Angeles as an example. Like, let's say I want to start a nonprofit for new music. Like, we know who the donors of new music are in Los Angeles because they're on the board of every other fucking new music thing in L.A. And that's great. And what you're trying to do there is kind of disingenuous. It's like, I don't really care what this person has to say, but I'm going to put them on my board because I know they donate <laughs> to new music. Yeah. There's other reasons, obviously, why to ask. Yes. If you have a funding board, you can have an active board. If right. it's an active board, like you want the lawyer on your board because they're going to make sure your paperwork is right. And like, that's a very active board um, kind of model. I will also say like, yeah, getting 513 status is great for for um, cultural grants mm -hmm. and those I think that um, musicians don't take advantage of personal grants as much as they could. I mean, anyone that's listening in LA, look up Center for Cultural Innovation and Growth. I've done three of their programs. They are so 
awesomely statewide funded uh, through other cultural initiatives. Um, and I've talked with some of the grants managers and sometimes, and it's not just CC, uh, CCI, but it, it's also like a lot of those organizations, sometimes like three people will apply, apply to a grant. And this might be like a thousand dollars, maybe $5,000, but that's enough to fund your EP. Yeah. 5,000 yeah. is enough to rent, to write an album, to get an album. Yeah. yeah. And three people applied last quarter. <sighs> like that money is just sitting there. Yeah. So, you know, um, there are also really good reasons for, for looking into those kind of nonprofit mindsets as well. Well, but, but okay. So like going back to, I guess this is like a personal thing, but hmm. I feel this very much in my own life. Like I'm very like you in a way, like I want to do something that helps the community, yeah. but I also don't believe in martyrdom. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like becoming a martyr for the cause. And so do you feel like the fact that you are running a profitable business is part of your drive to work? Cause you like people should not, we should not, under like it should be underscored the fact that people that are entrepreneurs like you or that run their own company work overtime yeah <laughs> like pretty much for 20 years this is like a long haul type of like love investment but is is like the idea that you're building something profitable that's employing people in fair rates and like a business does that give you drive for that kind of time investment do you feel like it would be different if you felt like there were all these uh, grants coming in and all this other stuff instead of just relying on yourself? Not that grant writing is not relying on yourself. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a very interesting question. Um, I think it's a little bit of how I'm wired in that I don't like to owe people money mm. and I uh, like to work hard to earn money. And like, I don't, I, I also, okay, when I was in high school on that note, um, I worked at this mom and pop shop after track, track and field practice, and these there'd be like these these little ladies that would come in and buy scratch offs every week, and every time they would lose, and I was like, you were throwing away like twenty thirty dollars every week, and I did the math, and I was like, what? And you know, and they're driving like an old beat up cars, and then I was like, you didn't buy scratch-offs for four months like you could fix your car you know and it really bugged me and so I also don't gamble I don't do scratch-offs I don't like I don't know and and maybe that's me not taking risk but I'm also like well I have the x amount of dollars and I know I strategically can put it here to make y amount um through this system or whatever and I like seeing that process work better so like, I like, um, you know, my CFO and I are working right now on our quarter one, quarter two trajectory. And it's a, it's a very strategic little uh, math problem there that is realistic in X amount of coaches and X amount of resources and courses that we are launching, you know, pulled together. I like that a lot better. And so again, this is just me than putting a lot of money and effort into hopefully maybe getting something back. Maybe that will change as I keep going. You know, again, like I think I, I'm heading towards a funding round, but 
I think it comes back from that like high school scratch off experience of watching people put throw money away and and um yeah so I think that side of it but the as far as where what fuels me within a for-profit mindset is is a, a for-profit entity is actually I think my nonprofit mindset is because when I see our profit and I see our like our PL statement and I'm like ah I know a percentage of that I can put back into a new program that we want to launch which will then grow bigger and then we can take a percentage of that profit from that new program and then lead that into another initiative or to sponsor a student you know we just launched this uh, sponsor student tracking model and we have a wait list of students that would love to take lessons and coachings um you know so th there's where i can see the perceived value and i think not uh, i don't know if i want to say this that bluntly but like you know i think the nonprofit mindset within there is useful mm -hmm to be able to put money back into your company um to see the, the long-term growth that's possible is, is super super helpful well but i also like one of the things that you just said and that i find is a constant with my friends that have companies is like the reality of for-profit you know what you just said it's like at the end of the day and it sounds like i'm talking about like something very crude and, and fucked up but it's like the bottom line becomes a very interesting meter of your worth in a positive way i think in mm -hmm. times like these so uh, the reason i bring this up is like i'm seeing so many people uh in our field like saying like you need to find a way to monetize everything you do like you have you played an etude monetize that and i'm like who get well first of all let's let's try that Put up yeah. the A2 and monetize it. And then look at the bottom line of how many people paid for that shit. <laughs> and so that that's like where the nonprofit model and the profit model co like collide. Because it's like at the end of the day, if you have a nonprofit and you run a concert and five people show up, it's like, that's okay. You know, we had funding for it. Whatever. If you with a for-profit organization like runs. Good. You know, like the performance was well-executed art performance. Exactly. And oh, it was amazing for the five people that were there. And yeah. we gave away 50 tickets and it was full. And it's like, and that's okay. I'm not trying to say like, that's okay. But the benefit for like a private person, like if I'm a student or a young professional, I'm trying to monetize what I do. The value of for-profit things is like, it it tells you the reality of what your 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 worth to the world and i'm not saying you're worth personality like you might be a wonderful person you might have a lot to offer to the world but like it puts into perspective whether what your idea is people want and like that's very important to me in moments like now because yeah. i think that it could actually make a lot of people revalue their career choices but also maybe they're what makes them happy like if you're not going to make money playing that etude anyway why play that etude if you don't like it if you love it go for it but like if if you don't like it why wouldn't you spend those eight yeah. hours it took to learn it learning some shit you actually like and maybe has better market share yeah um i have like three thoughts on that all at once um <laughs> you ready <laughs> um because more than a few people actually i haven't done this but i was thinking maybe i would because i'm not teaching the full course this semester and enough of my friends that have graduated uh have been like man Kristen, i wish i could have taken your arts entrepreneurship class like back when i was in school and so because it's something i own um and the curriculum is mine i have been considering just putting it up on the den 
and seeing if any like musicians and friends and, and like people out of school for 10, 15 years, like want to run one of their project ideas through it. So I'm toying with the idea, but within that, one of the things that I do teach in the course is um, doing your product market fit and your KPIs, your key performance indicators and your, uh, I would say target market audience because I like to relate it back to the music, but you would just say like target market, you know? And um, if you're not running any of that stuff ahead of time and you just put up this etude and you like, hope oh, for the best or you, launch, you have this concert and five people show up, like you're very like, clearly not hitting your intended market. And that is a flaw in your business model. And I don't care how, um, I wouldn't say I don't care, but in a business mindset, I don't care how good the concert was. In my mind, the goods have got to be good. The concert will always be good. But if you're not hitting your target market, you, you, that is a flawed business model. And so um, running some of those studies ahead of time, doing your market research ahead of time. And then finally, uh, one thought that uh, I spoke with Amy on recently was there's an awesome musician in LA. I won't mention her name, but she uh, has a really, within monetization, the con that conversation, she has, she's monetized. She's killed it. She's, she's crushing it. She also has communicated to all of her music community, hey, like this is my business thing. Don't feel the need or pressure to follow me. This is not for you. I'll see you in the studios. This is not for you. This is for me to make money and to have a fan base and to do all that. And she has, you know, 20, 30,000 followers and, and, and does sponsors and endorsements and all that. And she's paying for all of her expenses now through social media. Like she's done it. And so it frees her up to actually choose the gigs and the, the, the studio sessions that she wants to do. She shows up totally fulfilled musically because she's not straining herself out doing every other gig imaginable. But she, I thought that was the smartest thing she could have ever done was tell her music community, like I'm putting this out here and I'm not after you and you don't have to feel pressured to, I'm not trying to monetize my friends. And I do think a lot of musicians are trying to manipulate and monetize their friends. And, and that is gonna turn them off and they will get isolated from their, any performance opportunities. It, I am HO, <laughs> but I see that happening. And I mute uh, like some of the music people that are just trying really hard to get me to buy something or, or it's just, so very clearly I'm not their target market audience is what I'm trying to say. And uh, for example, her target market audience are the gamer musician fans uh, that wanna hear Zelda perform, you know, cool. Great, go after them. Um, I'll see you in the studio and we can hang and be friends and I can actually like you as a human. <laughs> um, but it just, that part, if, um, it just really infuriates me when I see some musicians try to use their friend base as their funding pool, because I think that's, you haven't done your market research. Um, so the end. <laughs> it, it's 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 also a little bit like that old school thing, like put your money where your mouth is. I mean, it 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 used expertise used to be so clearly delined, like delineated in the sense that like, in order for you to have mark like a, a space in the public sphere to talk about what you thought you were an expert at, you had to have been an expert at something. Like right. if you, 
if you were going to be a public intellectual of any kind, for example, it didn't mean that you needed to be an expert of anything that you were talking about, but it meant like, well, that dude is here talking about that or that, that, that woman is here talking about that. But, you know, she's like the top uh, whatever somewhere. And it's like, OK, so you can. And, and I think a lot of it is work ethic. And so part of what you're talking about with musicians and monetization, it's obvious to me when somebody can say, hey, look, I'm starting a Patreon. Uh, this gives you access to these things that I want to do. And then you're like, okay, well, I can't get access to that any other way. This person's a badass. I'll support those people. But the, you're right. It gets really, like, weird. And you see it a lot in the arts world, but in music specifically. Like, people that are like, I launched a Patreon, and uh, it's just to help me pay my bills, guys. And it's like, well, I'm paying bills, too, motherfucker. Like, why am I supposed to give you money for nothing? Especially because like, you're not giving me anything. It's like, here's a Bach cantata. It's like, well, okay. It's, first of all, not very well produced. Second of all, Glenn Gould does it better. And like, third of all, like, what? Well, why? Why am I supposed to give you money for that? Like, your your time is not worth my money right now. You didn't prove to me that your time is worth my money. Like you said, you need to find out who your target is and et cetera. But we can't keep expecting to be paid for something that we've spent our lives doing. It's like, yeah, everyone has spent their lives doing something. You know? Right. That's such a good point, you know, and even to give the example of like that this past year, the YouTube kind of craze of like, oh, follow yeah. and subscribe with me so I can get 100 followers so I can start to monetize and it's all that. And it's like, cool. Now you have 100 followers. Have you put up actually good, valuable content that would enable plays so that then you would get monetized? Because you could have 100 subscribed followers and have bad videos, uh, poorly, poorly produced or poorly played. Um, or just like not what I want to watch, then I'm not going to watch it. So the plays aren't going to happen. So it's not going to get monetized. Like, even if, you know, so like we can be friends and I can support you and I'll subscribe to you, but it still doesn't dictate my viewing habits of what I find interesting on YouTube. Um, will I watch some like really weird marimba videos over and over again? Yeah, because I want to watch that. Am I going to watch a Bach cantata on the organ, uh, like from an iPhone recording for 40 minutes? Probably not, <laughs> even if it happens to be my friend. Maybe I'll play it once, but it's not going to help. It's not, point being, you're not actually going to get monetization if you're not putting out good content. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the it goes, well, it goes back to what you're saying, like, easy versus hard-earned money and that the the thing that humans can't seem to understand hard-earned money beats beats the easy profit every time like statistically speaking mm -hmm. like the number of millionaires that just made it big overnight is not real and i'm not, I'm not even talking about it here like becoming a millionaire this that's not my motivation here but what i mean is like I'll be a millionaire. what are you talking about don't well, yourself. sure sure but but what i'm talking about here like people like people always say like why is jeff bezos so rich i'm like when was the last time you ordered off amazon it's like oh yeah five times this week it's like that there you go this dude killed himself for like 20 years no life that dude is not is barely a human being and now he's one of the richest men in the world and i'm not talking about that that should be your motivation money but what you can learn from that is that dude killed himself for what he wanted and it's the same with any musician that we know like the ones that 
And that's the part that is funny with like, for example, views, the musicians that have worked so hard for years to create an audience. Let's talk about like Wynton Marsalis or somebody like that. Well, of course he posts a YouTube video and it gets monetized immediately, but it's not because he just posted a video. It's because for 30 years, that dude has been nonstop, not just practicing, but being a public persona and like putting out incredibly high level content. And it's like, it works every time, every time. I will say also, I know for a fact, Wynton Marsalis is one of those people that has helped a lot of other people up. He's been one of the people like notoriously would make sure that there's new people on this session or this gig and, and, and has opened up the careers, for, opened up the doors for so many other up and coming musicians careers. Like that's where I think it actually walks the walk and mm-hmm. that level of really authentic following and interest in a person like you can't fake that stuff. And that doesn't happen overnight either. You know, yeah. that, those are the musicians I really respect. Yeah, he's amazing. But I want to go back to one thing about like, and it's it's tied to what we were saying, but uh, you talked about like, and I don't want to go in a rant against the union, but I want to explore so, your initiative in contrast to the institutions that are supposed to be there. Like, I guess what I'm getting at is, we need to kind of sound the alarm to everyone that we're no longer in an era where the institutions are going to be here for you to help uh, in the way that they used to. And they haven't been for years, but now it's like really game over. And so you brought up like uh, streaming technologies and stuff like that. And that's like the clearest example of like where we're going to have to have more people like you and self-reliance because this is like, the fact that the musicians union is just talking about Netflix when the writers strike for, for, um, for the rights on streaming happened like 12 years ago, something like that at this point. So we're so late to the game that I just don't even trust that somebody like that is going to push this through. Whereas I'm very much more trusting that people like starting their own companies are embedding this into their own contracts that I see more faith in that than in putting our faith behind like, the studios um, cutting their profit or the union having any power at this point 12 years later than it should have happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and there's so many, there's two directions I could go. I'll say really quickly within the, those specific things, like one of the initiatives I'm very much interested in, like for quarter one, we have this one awesome entertainment lawyer that's coming on and it's going to be doing a um, live three-part workshop series about the different the three different types of contracts or um, I'm sorry of copyright and um, the fact that we need to learn about that within like you know copyright within YouTube streaming and, and all this stuff like just to have that first access point level and anyone that's that joins the den does get you know access to we're bringing on a few other um, entertainment lawyers later for for one-on-one time and we're looking to see how we can um, just have for any of the DEN members have a resource library that we're building out right now that is downloadable contracts that are pretty blanket statement, but that you can bring to your recording session or to your, uh, or to at least have, if you are contracting in players um, to just have some resources there and some actual lawyer jargon documents that um, are for 2021 you know, like he's writing them now. 
for us. So like there's where I can kind of cut out a little bit of the extra red tape and the middleman and all that stuff and just be like, hey, musicians, you, you are, if you're part of the den, here you go. Here's your access to your, your library. For, um, and it's not a library on like research about, I don't know, some obscure composer. <laughs> It's like, here's some documents you can use um, when you go into your session. So I'm, that that is just like kind of a on the court example. Um, I don't know, if, I mean, I'm not really well invested into the union in LA and I haven't had to be quite frankly because the projects that I'm recording on don't require it um, and don't, and I always thought that at some point I would join whenever it was necessary. Like when I got to that gig that would need it, but I've just done so many other fun gigs and tours that are not LA union specific that I haven't really needed to. Um, I know that plenty of musician friends do still benefit from the union, but I think in our conversation, it's important to remind yourself, similar to what we were talking about earlier, of like the history. Like why did the union first get created? It came from uh, like, if I remember correctly, like General Motors, um, like industrial revolution type stuff, like that's where unions came from. Very clearly, we're not chaining any musician to a chair to play violin until their strings, until their fingers bleed and there's no AC or ventilation and you don't get a bathroom break. You know what I mean? Like, like the core tangible reason of why unions came together from strikes and um, industrial revolution to where we are now and understanding that orchestras, many of the community orchestras and the, and the orchestras then from the cities that got built were, were initially funded from, for example, the uh, Carnegie Foundation, the, the, these types of things were to provide joy and, and um, community and, and like there were musicians that were workers during the day and then would Play in these orchestras in the evenings and then they were better workers during the day because they're more so it was back to business to even in some of these I'm not saying all um and obviously like my history recollection is my interpretation of it but within unions they kind of or orchestra unions followed suit because or musician unions followed suit because of what was happening from the work day and um in many cases I mean when I sat in on some I reviewed some recent, not recent, it was like five years ago, um, some CBA uh, negotiations in a board meeting minutes, and they were arguing about if the au pair could be on the plane for the tour so the kids could come with the musicians and other musicians didn't want the kids on the tour because it was gonna be, they were gonna be loud. And I was like, this is what the union is like. These, these are, this is very, very like different from where it started. So, um, and that's an extreme example, but like, so take it with a grain of salt, but man, how do you justify um, that, that happening? And so the other side of it, I know that unions are quite helpful in uh, healthcare you know, for, for getting health insurance for freelance players and musicians who are there. Um, I happen to have just this past week uh, locked in a nice agreement with a counseling service uh, company based in LA that takes LA care. So they take 
the musicians freelance healthcare insurance and they handle all of it and they handle HIPAA and that we are totally in the green with that stuff. So we don't have to worry about any of that uh, stuff. But again, it's like, okay, where, where are the people that aren't in the union um, and what resources are they not receiving right now? Um, so there's kind of that feel too. Oh man, I go on so many tangents. No, but they, you know, you went, so <laughs> let's, ba- let's backtrack for a second because your feeling about it, I've come to realize in America is 100% correct with orchestra unions in the sense that the first full-time orchestra in America was in the 50s and it was the Philly Orchestra. So mm-hmm. like even when you're looking at like Fantasia and like the Stakowski Philly Orchestra, yeah, those were mostly like painters and accountants and right. uh doctors who were pretty competent european musicians that had come here after the exodus starting in like 1890 essentially Mm -hmm. and the orchestras were built and funded like you said by carnegie and mellon and and rockefeller and all these people because largely they missed the culture from europe and they wanted it here but it was like a mostly amateurish endeavor like you said it's it's not even though gustav Mahler was the conductor of the new york phil it wasn't like the Vienna State Opera. They were different things. And so part of why the Musician Union existed too was because those conductors became like real assholes in America because their musicians weren't professionals. So, you know, you started getting things like, (laughs) it's true. So like in the Cleveland Orchestra, George Zell had a famous, like he would show you, you know, two, two fingers, like the peace sign. And that meant two weeks notice. Like if you fucked up, he would, do this in the middle of the concert and it would be like two weeks notice. So the unions came about when the musicians started becoming professional musicians, like when Juilliard started popping out people in the 1920s and 1930s and into the 80s when probably America was training more professional musicians than Europe. And so by then the unions became super necessary because you had these like hyper aggressive conductors that ruled like tyrants and nobody to defend these now professional musicians which before like you said they didn't care if they got fired from the cleveland orchestra because they were probably painters or or like tailors and so who cares if i got fired from my fun orchestra gig Mm -hmm. so the union makes sense and it made sense through the record deals and i think they handled that very well but especially after Obamacare passed and all these, and it seems like America is going towards that direction, despite what it might look like with everything. Like it's going through a more socialized healthcare initiative in some way. I don't think the union really offers any benefits to anyone that, like you said, isn't working a ton of union jobs. Yeah. The only thing it's doing is somewhat in some ways limiting me from going after Mm -hmm. union gigs. Yeah, and where they spend their money. Like you gave a pretty funny example, but it's not the only one that I'm I've been like always been critical. Like they spend their money sending people for five hours to intimidate musicians who take non music unions and hiring so many stories of that. Yeah. That's terrifying. That makes me not want to join a union. Yes. But that's what they spend their money on. So they pay that guy, they pay for a lawyer to persecute somebody who starts an anti union thing. That's what they spend their money on. And meanwhile, streaming services are doing whatever they want with your music uh Mm -hmm. and 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 by the way the other thing that they're supposed to do super well is the pension fund which is so depleted that our friends on well exactly like our friends who have paid into it like they're not going to get any of that 
it's all for the people that made millions of dollars in the 70s and are about to retire. Like it's it, so beyond the union making no sense, I think like what does make sense to me is taking and I know it sounds like like I said, like I'm a Republican asshole and that's not what I mean, but you need to like take care of yourself uh more like we the what covid has shown me is like we all need to be more aware of how we can actually financially survive if we want to be artists like does that mean taking a second job does that mean your quartet or music group needs to be more proactive in making money does that mean that you know you need to go to school a little bit and i don't mean university but like take some courses in in management or do you need to have a lawyer friend that can walk you through a contract? I, I, I think the world is shifting, but we need to take more responsibility about that shift if we're going to survive. Like the musicians that survive, it's not just that they're creative in their own practice, but have an initiative of their own career as a money-making enterprise in a way. Yeah. And I think even in a bigger picture is um, musicians taking on through, through this pandemic you know, the ones that took on, okay, I guess I need to learn a few more tricks on audio engineering. Okay, cool. Even if it's watch some YouTube videos, like that's mm -hmm. great. You want to take a course from the den, that's even better. But but like, you know, like whatever is available, um, you know, uh, to take the initiative to say, okay, well, if I do want to do some remote sessions, I guess I do need to learn at least the basics of logic or pro tools and invest in one mic and maybe an interface, you know, and um, that, I think some people will shy away from um I think the people that have taken taken that on in the first couple months are the ones that are like riding the wave right now so that's good um but I think even in a bigger picture figuring out what you like how you like your life to operate who you even want to interact with who do you want to surround yourself what kind of energy do you want to be putting out there and and receiving and um I think this has been like a really helpful time and perhaps like even from the beginning of the conversation you know musicians that maybe we don't want to run ragged um all over the city to play every gig and be like i'm making it as a musician you know like just getting clear on what feels good and then continue to run towards what feels good and that's where more opportunities open up and they're going to open up in the the limelight of what feels good and so um that is more helpful to even driving your your life and your career path forward in the ways that you want um you know so i had a few like good self-talk moments of figuring out like you know i actually don't like playing that stuff i'm good at it but i don't i'd rather spend my energy focusing on this thing so you know i'm grateful for that time you know i i think we're reaching an end point here but i want to ask you about how you feel about this i think for years, I've been aware of this, but COVID has really made it clear because of what you're talking about. But do you think it's also like important to be realistic about the prices we pay one way or another or the lifestyles that are achievable based on the decisions we make? So like, if you are trying to be a freelance musician in New York, LA or London, you should probably do away with the idea that you're going to have a normal uh, looking life as far as like waking up at nine and going to work and coming back you know or if you want to be an audition hog you should probably give away 
this idea that you're not going to be moving every couple of years until you land your job or it's like, do you think that that's also part of the balance is discovering like COVID is helping people discover what's or should be helping people discover what really would make them happy and making some hard decisions based on that? Hmm. Like not everyone's cut out to do what you do, Kristen. Like oh, it yeah, should no. be made clear that you're not like, <laughs> You're not like sitting in Hawaii. I might look like that on social media, but it's not like you're sitting on a beach and the den just happens. You know what I mean? No, no, definitely not. Um, I think though, like, I don't know if I have actually a pointed answer for this. I think for me, I got really clear on what kind of lifestyle I want. Hmm. Um, well, I guess the question, okay, so for example, and you don't have to go into specifics, if you've if it's become clear what kind of lifestyle you want, did you feel like some things that you thought you wanted got sacrificed? Like, and maybe even painfully that you say to yourself, oh, that means this is not really something I need. Um, you know, for example, for me, uh, the kind of lifestyle I, I came to terms with, like, I can't live poor. Like, and I don't mean like, by the way, I, I don't mean that I need to be a billionaire, but I mean, I discovered, you know, I grew up a certain way and I am not the guy to live with five roommates until the age of 40. Like that's something I discovered a couple and that mm -hmm. came at the and also I'm not the guy that's going to be moving around to some small town just to get a gig. Uh that's me. I need mm -hmm. a city. It gives me a lot of energy and I need a certain mm -hmm. lifestyle. But that came with like the painful giving up of certain things, like certain pipe dreams, like uh and that's okay. I don't mean like that everyone should, but some of those things were painful, like giving up uh, the idea that, you know, I don't go to every audition. And that mm -hmm. means that I'm lowering my chances of ever winning a job in a way. Um, or mm -hmm. I might have to take a job outside of music that I don't really enjoy as much all the time. You know, I, I'm not trying to get it, put you on the spot. I'm just curious personally, like as friends, like, have you found that to be? Like that something, everything comes at a cost and that, that has to be okay to like balance that out. Yeah. I'm trying to just think of specifics though. Um, well, I'll I, give you a specific, like somebody said, why do you want money? And I said, like, what do you want a certain amount of money? And I said, because a week in Florence is more valuable to me than just about anything. And like life is limited and I want to have enough money to go to Florence. Like right. just as a stupid example. Yeah. Um, well, may I just say, I think the, the only response I have, honestly, is like, why do you want a lot of money? And it's like, because I want a lot of money. <laughs> you don't, I mean, I don't really even have to justify it. Or yeah. just that I choose. Mm -hmm. that I want this. Why do you want a five octave marimba one? Because I want one. I don't even have to give the reasons of like, because I've studied, I've played, you know, percussion for over 20 mm -hmm. years studied in that instrument speaks most to me and I want to do marimba and voice and I love collaborating with art for, and I love the types of or, or if I buy that specific marimba it'll open these doors right you just yeah. want it it's because I want it um and why do you want to date this person over that person because I want to because <laughs> I you know so um I think that's kind of why I'm struggling with this answer but um I think there is something to be said about like perhaps you know some musicians maybe t taking on or standing in their own power and standing in their own conviction of uh, I choose this because I choose this 
um, whatever lifestyle you do choose, really taking on owning it. And I, I, because I want to, um, why do I want to create the den? Because I want to, I, if I didn't want to, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) Um, So that's, I don't know, that's kind of interesting, an interesting thought. I am trying to think of some specifics, like some sacrifices that I've had. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but um, I will say like, I still really plan on playing on big stages with top artists and really great experiences musically. Um, How will that come about? Who knows? Like who knows how the grid will fill in, but the, I I have certainly considered, you know, um, maybe this is just like a female musician thing conversation, but like, yeah, I also want a family Mm -hmm. at some point. I'd like to, you know. um, Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Is that in conflict with any of my like real high level music gig ambitions? Touring a lot. Um, But I don't know. I hung out with some of my friends that are in Cirque in Madrid last year, and some of them tour with their whole families you know and that's just the life that they choose so they choose it they don't need to even explain why it's just like because this is the life we choose so um I will say I think perhaps there is inner struggle sometimes with with musicians when they don't feel that they are of value or worth enough Mm. to choose what they truly feel that they want that they feel it's not yeah I'm not of enough, I'm not of worth or value to, to choose that I choose this lifestyle or this life or these ambitions or put this yeah. out to manifest. Like, um, and I think that's just so unfortunate because you're just limiting yourself. And so I think maybe perhaps it comes down to mindset. Well, but also I think that that, that is, even though it seems like what I asked and what the answer was were different, there's there actually, that's a great answer because it's like, instead of thinking of it as sacrifices, it's choices. And cho- choices yeah. have consequences, but that, that doesn't, that's not a bad thing. Like if your self-worth comes from somebody else's career as a metric, you're already going to lose because you're not that person. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think this idea of choice, but mixed with an idea of youth and risk is something we should, that I think COVID gives us an opportunity for. I've been I've been saying this to some people, and um, I might or might not keep this part of it, but no, I'll keep it. Uh, they, some people are like still paying lip service to the hierarchy uh, of, for example, the gig e- economy in Los Angeles. Like, uh-huh. like, oh no, I won't do that project because it'll make me look bad, and then I won't get a uh, studio work. It's like. Dude, there is no studio work for you. There's four people doing it. It's not going to, you're not going to do it. Like, you're not going to do it. It's COVID. And like, you're a young 18 year old kid. Like, what do you want to do? It's like, well, I've always dreamt of uh, having a jazz uh, combo. It's like, do that. You're 18. You're 18 in school. Like, really fuck up right now. Because when you're like 30, you don't get to do this again. And by then you've lost 20 years of like a, a path that we've all followed that have been asking ourselves like constantly what makes me happy and been lucky enough to be taught to make choices in life instead of like, you know, 
and I'm not saying following the typical path is a bad thing. I'm just saying I don't think people that follow the path all the time are truthful to their own motivations and desires. It's like, oh, I'll do that later. It's like, well, there is no later. Later is is five years less experience. Later is 10 years less experience. You know what I mean? Like, let's say you had said, oh, I don't have enough experience to lunch the den. I should really go to coding school. Yeah. Then you wouldn't have done it because it, like that would have taken you two years. And that's two years where you didn't launch the den. And somebody else would have launched it's different mm-hmm. in two years later. So it would be obsolete. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I, I, I hope more people see that with COVID and like start doing what's best for their own life and their own voice. Yeah, I'm so uh, I'm so intrigued. I know we're wrapping up. Yeah. But I'm so intrigued by by all of this because. Uh, again, the people I'm talking to that are the non musicians, they asked us. Um, so what are the personalities of the different music types? And I was like, oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> but I realized, um, and then I was thinking about like, oh, I'm hopping on here to talk with Nico. I was like, man, I should really think about some trumpet stuff. Or some, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like, what can I offer about trumpet? Um, the trumpet and, voice. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was like, it was funny. As we were talking, I was kind of thinking, I was like, I am, what did I say to myself? Um, the, you know, the kind of the phrase, like, I'm the leading lady of your own movie, kind mm-hmm. of. I was like, I'm the principal trumpet of my own life. That's, that's exactly it. Trumpet stereotypes and all that. And I was like, but the funny part is, I think the only thing I can actually offer is the, um, like, the girlfriend of the trumpet player, because I've traditionally dated majority of been trumpet players and i think there's a thing between like percussion and trumpet players like we are just a, funny animals in the animal kingdom together and maybe it's just because we're in the back of the room um in the rehearsal <laughs> but, it, but we was, also play very loud things that are probably destroying our brains somehow yeah but we're having fun while <laughs> we're doing it so <laughs> well but you know like that what you just said like i have to tell you ever since i launched this thing my yeah. biggest hesitation in launching this, I've had this project, actually, it's kind of like your thing with Ben. I've had this project for three years because I was mm-hmm. traveling around the world and I have like a very big access to people that are hard to get access to because I'm I'm good at it. I'm good at like making friends. So uh, my biggest thing was like, I also, anyone who knows me, I have a big mouth and a lot of opinions and I have a really hard time like not telling somebody like dude you're full of shit or or <laughs> saying saying something that somebody's like dude you can't say that like that's that's me a hundred percent and my biggest hesitation was like how is this gonna hurt my possibilities of getting a job how is this gonna hurt my possibilities of getting gigs and then when this whole thing happened have an amazing laugh yes so- I do have an amazing so that that <laughs> yeah. If we're whenever we're in gigs together and you start laughing, I can't not. I I have to like go to another room. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so at least I have that. But it came down at one point to that, and I have had people tell me like, "Oh, dude, I don't know if I would post that." Like I sometimes send things that I write to people, and mm-hmm. I get nervous every time. But then at the end of the day, I there's somebody I really valued who was a public intellectual that used to say, you only have one life and you have to choose your own regrets. Hmm. And that really hit home for me for an artistic life. Like, 
if you don't do what you believe in, if you don't launch the company that you launched, if you don't say your opinions, which is like something important for me, or talk to the people that are not going to be here forever, like, then your regret is much larger than making a mistake. Or, you know, like, we've be I, I think we've become so paranoid about our public perceptions of the arts that we've forgotten to express what we want to say or to do the things we want to do or to launch the project that you launch. I've literally seen people say like my passion in life is to launch something like this, but I really don't want to encroach on so-and-so's territory. It's like fucking joking. Like you, that, that leaves you with nothing that leaves you at the end of the day with nothing. Yeah. I'm not saying that done should be the end all be all. I'm saying it should be a part of the ecosystem. And it should, you know, like there's room for other projects and there's room for everything. And the uh, the fear of failure, I think, is one of the most toxic things right now. And the fear of judgment in like I'll get canceled or or a big name is gonna blacklist me. It's like okay, well they'll blacklist you. It's one person. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I think that's yeah. a great place to wrap it. But I think that you're you're just doing you're just killing it. I'm so so happy seeing how you're doing and. Hopefully you'll be back soon and things will resume and we can have, you know, dinners again. Yeah, I can't <laughs> wait to have some. That is, those are kind of the things that I am missing. I miss the in-person friend dinners and get togethers and just laughing and um, like laughing without a screen every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Well, people that are, a lot of people won't know this, but like you are part of something that I started right before the pandemic, which was like, I got really tired. And that's another thing that I hope COVID helps people. It's like the musicians community, at least in LA, we see each other all the time, but then like we don't. It's like only at gigs. And, you know, I had started doing these dinner parties with like a group of people where every month we knew we were going to get together. And I miss that so much. But also I highly encourage people right now to like nurture their friendships because, uh, they're more valuable. Like these dinners that we had were some so much more valuable than like gig hangs. Oh, there's yeah. no ulterior motive. Yeah, it's it's so different than like hanging out at intermission or going to the bar after the gig because mm -hmm. you're tired. You're you know there's there's other reasons for being there. And for this, it's like I showed up because I, again, same thing. I showed up because I want to show up. You, you know, like I came because I wanted to be around these friends. Um, yeah. And, and, and your friendships are so encouraging too. That's the other thing. Like artist friendships, when they're real, are so encouraging of launching each other's projects. So cool. and everyone wants to see each other win. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. I think when people think about being a little nervous to launch their own thing, like you, your friends actually want to see you win. And it, and dare I say even more so, then it it levels up because if you're winning, then I'm winning, and when I'm winning, you're winning. You know, and it just kind of keeps. Uh, the momentum going so it's not like anyone wants to see you fail ever well and your friends outside of gigs are more on like that's always something i laugh at in la when people are like how's the gigging life going in la back back when they was going and i'm like well you know every time i do a gig i just hear how wonderful i am to work with and how they every gig would be wonderful if it had only been with this group of people and it just it's kind of like the hypocrisy that we all play into which is fine i'm not saying that's a bad thing it's part of being social uh that is present at gigs is not so present in your friendships which is a good thing that like at, i feel like if at one of our 
parties that we used to have had, uh, one of the dinner parties, somebody said, you know, Jonah, we're going to pick on Jonah. Hi, Jonah. Oh, jo- Jonah said, I'm going to launch uh CD where it's all blank and it's going to be called <laughs> Fuck My Jewish Tribe. We we would <laughs> we would have told him like, Jonah, bro, this is a bad idea. It's really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like at the gig, somebody would have been like, that's oh, super it- interesting. That's so creative that you're doing your own. <laughs> And you'd be like, gonna take a lap. <laughs> oh, buddy. Yeah, that, yeah, that is true. That's a good thing. Too. So anyway, this is awesome. Let's talk again soon. It's been too long. Yeah. And thank you. All right. Take care, Nico. Bye. Bye.